Welcome to Interesting Times. I'm Joe Streckert. This is an independent, listener-supported podcast. To support the show, go to interestingtimespodcast.com. I want you to imagine something. You're in an army. You're standing next to the other members of your unit. The enemy is on the horizon. This is not a new situation before. You've done this before. You've been in battles before. You were at Khartoum when the walls fell, and your country, Sudan, shook off the Ottoman Egyptians and the British. You ventured into Ethiopia. You sacked Gondar. You lit its temples ablaze. Later on, you faced down an army led by King Johannes IV of Ethiopia himself. You saw a king die, and you saw your country defeat its neighbor. You've put down rebellions. You feel ready for what's ahead of you. The order comes to charge, and you clutch the rifle that you've used to cut down an unknown number of opponents. As you rush to the army invading your country, you see a man out of the corner of your eye, several feet to the left of you, fall. This does not bother you. You have seen this happen before. You have seen men take bullets before. You have seen men die before. You keep charging. But then, in the next instant, the man next to him falls, and after that instant, the soldier directly to your left also crumples to the ground, and soon, very soon, you feel a sharp punch in your torso. You don't feel any pain, not at first, but you feel the impact, and it stops you. You fall. The soldier who is directly behind you, he runs into and over you, and on the ground you see a whole mass of men in a similar situation, their uniforms stained with blood, and suddenly you hear a fast, repetitive noise that you cannot name. You know what gunshots sound like. You have shot plenty of guns. You have been shot at plenty of times. But this is like a rapid susurrus of gunshots, like hundreds of rifles going off at once and in succession. After a few minutes, the pain starts, and you try to breathe, but it's difficult. Your pierced lung is filled with blood and other fluids, and soon, under the buzzing gunshots, you hear cries of pain. Some men are screaming. There are shouted oaths. There are prayers. You look at the sun and things go dark. You never even got to fire your rifle. And I know I'm being uncharacteristically poetic here, but had you been a Sudanese soldier at the Battle of Omdurman, that's a fate that you could have experienced. When the modest state fell, it did so in a violent and lopsided battle that saw immense casualties on one side and far fewer casualties on the other. The Battle of Omdurman, which closes out the existence of the modest state, is often characterized as a great British military victory. But, really, the Battle of Omdurman is barely a battle at all. It's not a competition. It is the firing of guns into an oncoming crowd. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Sudan's modest state endured for about a decade and a half, and in that time, the various European powers, they were expanding into Africa. You'll recall Italy invading and getting beaten by Ethiopia in the last episode, for instance. During this scramble for Africa, France, they began to take an interest in Egypt, into Sudan, and the Suez Canal region, all that, and the particularities of that are only obliquely germane to our topic today. What's important here is that that French interest refocused British attention on the region. 
because France was starting to meddle in Egypt, the Sudan, the Nile, etc., Britain said, well, we can't have that. We can't have France influencing that region. We need to influence that region. They wanted to be the European power with the Suez and the Nile in their sphere of influence. And British influence in Sudan in the form of military and economic advisement during the modest period increased to the point where Britain was, for all intents and purposes, treating Egypt, a semi-autonomous region in the Ottoman Empire, as basically their own. So Egypt is in this very strange position where they're technically part of the Ottoman Empire and they're kind of sort of independent and Britain's there as well, exerting a lot of influence. It's complicated, but after getting the Egyptian economy rolling and training up the military, there was the matter of Sudan. Egypt, they had never recognized Sudanese independence, neither did anyone else for that matter. They saw it as a rogue province, and they weren't the only ones. So did the British and the modest state, it was always considered something of a pariah state. And declaring war on your neighbors like Ethiopia, who maybe in another life could have been a regional ally, well, that will do it to you. So, after about a decade and a half of not dealing with Sudan, the British decide that they are going to take this area back, and I am not going to get into the particulars of all the battles. This is not a military history podcast. What's important is that they had a modern, mechanized army, by 1890s standards, and a British general named Horatio Herbert Kitchener was tasked with bringing Sudan this supposed rogue province of Egypt, to heal. And his army swept down from Egypt into Sudan, and eventually they met the Khalifa's forces at Omdurman, the capital of the modest state. And the Battle of Omdurman, with the meeting of the two sides, it almost feels a bit too uh, narratively perfect. You have Kitchener and his invading force, you have the huge mass of the modest state, and they are not meeting at some backwater. They are not meeting at some place that's merely strategically important. They're meeting just outside the capital. That is the kind of climax that you'd have in a movie. So we have a pretty compelling image going on. And in his book, The River War, Winston Churchill described the Sudanese forces this way, quote, Their array was perfect. They displayed a great number of flags, perhaps 500, which looked at the distance white, though they were really covered with text from the Koran, and which by their admirable alignments made this division of the Khalifa's army look like the old representations of the Crusaders in the Bayou Tapestry, unquote. And that is not quite correct. Churchill's book, The River War, there are so many things wrong with it, not least it being kind of racist, and by kind of, I mean entirely and totally, but that sort of image of the Khalifa's army looking kind of like an old crusader army, armed with spears and swords and the like, that has informed a lot of the discourse about this British war with Sudan. And when you look at art from the late 1800s and early 1900s, depicting this and propagandizing it, that's what you see. You see a bunch of guys with spears and swords versus a bunch of guys with guns. This has been characterized as a war between the civilized and the primitive, but it was not that. The Sudanese had guns, they had rifles, and until fairly recently, their equipment had been pretty up-to-date and competitive with what else was out there. After all, they had beaten the Ottoman Egyptians, they had beaten Gordon, they had beaten the Ethiopians, 
they had triumphed over other fairly modern forces. The gulf in technology between the Sudanese and the British, it did not show a gap between the industrial era and some imagined primitive past. No, instead, that showed a technological gap between the middle of the 1800s and the end of the 1800s. This conflict is mind-boggling in that one side only has a slight technological edge on the other, but that slight edge is still extremely significant. It made all of the difference. The primary British advantage over the Sudanese was a piece of new technology that had proven deadly in the American Civil War. The machine gun. More specifically, the gigantic and high-powered water-cooled Maxim gun that would often get red-hot while firing many bullets all at once, but then the metal was cooled down with water and most people would recognize it as a precursor to the minigun, and it cut through humans and horses with a never-before-seen quickness. It inspired a piece of British doggerel, oft-repeated, whatever happens, we have got the Maxim gun, and they have not. The gun's extraordinarily fast mechanized firing, that was a very important at the Battle of Omdurman. But also important at that battle was the psychological effect it probably had on the Sudanese forces. Many people around the world, in Sudan and otherwise, had still, literally, never seen a machine gun before. It must have been horrifying for a commander, who looked out, who counted the enemy, and who, based on what he knew about firearms, made a quick calculation about how rapidly they could maybe fire, how much damage they could actually do, and then woefully underestimating them because he was not able to take this new technology, the machine gun, into account. And I'm willing to bet more than a few well-disciplined Sudanese units lost all nerve and cohesion when faced with this new weapon. The first day of the Battle of Omdurman involved a lot of shelling and a lot of artillery, but the second day, that's when there were charges like the one that I described at the start of this podcast. The Sudanese had a huge numeric advantage, and had this battle happened maybe a decade or so earlier, they probably would have won. The gigantic Sudanese army probably would have been able to overtake the Anglo-Egyptians and just defeat them with sheer numbers, but at the end of the 1800s, with the Maxim gun in play, it didn't matter. At Omdurman, the Anglo-Egyptian forces, they had just over 25,000 soldiers. The modest forces numbered over 60,000. But those 25,000 Anglo-Egyptian soldiers, with their 40 or so Maxim guns, only 40 or so Maxim guns, they were able to defeat those 60,000 plus. And it was a horribly lopsided battle. It's not like the technology gave them a slight advantage, no. For the most part, the Sudanese army they died some distance away from the Anglo-Egyptians, usually around 300 yards away from the enemy lines, and at the end of it all, you had about 11,000 Sudanese dead and about 16,000 wounded. Kitchener's Anglo-Egyptian forces, they lost only about 500 dead and wounded. That is about 27,000 dead and wounded versus 500 hundred dead and wounded. That is immensely lopsided. 
After that battle, Kitchener left the wounded Sudanese soldiers to die on the battlefield, entered Omdurman, looted the city, and had the Khalifa's various officials hunted down and killed. Also, Kitchener violently destroyed the ideological and religious foundations of the Sudanese modest state. For instance, he blew up Damadi's tomb, which had formerly been a destination of Sudan's new Hajj. He disinterred Muhammad Ahmad's body. He supposedly cut the head off the corpse, had the body flung into the Nile, and supposedly later presented the skull to Queen Victoria as a prize, and supposedly she had the decorum to reject it. Another story is that Kitchener had the Mahdi's skull made into a drinking vessel. But I also think that's more of a tall tale than an actual fact. As for the Khalifa, he fled south and was eventually killed. The Mahdist state was very suddenly gone. Sudanese independence was gone. Sudan was very much back where it started. Previously, it had been under Ottoman Egyptian control, and now it's under British control. I couldn't tell you how Sudan would have been different had the modest state been allowed to continue. Obviously, the modest state was extraordinarily repressive, and that regime would have continued to have been awful to the people under it. But it would have been an independent African country, and who knows, maybe it would have, at some point in the 20th century, developed some kind of coherent civil society. But that's not what happened. The British, they came into Sudan, they wanted to modernize the place, and what they ended up doing was aggravating the existing ethnic and political differences in the country, very much favoring the northern population over the southern population, and they left Sudan an aggrieved, aggravated, and divided country. It was that way when it finally gained independence in 1956. It was that way during the recent genocide in Darfur. And it was that way when Sudan finally split into two different countries. But that all is a story for a different time. For a brief moment at the end of the 1800s, this African country, under Ottoman Egyptian domain, revolted, attempted to form an independent government. The revolution was ideological and poisonous. It lashed out at its neighbors, and then the whole thing died under fire of British miniguns. I know that that was a really dark episode, and I know that this entire series has been kind of dark. Next week, it's going to be different, and we're going to get into something um slightly more lighthearted. Uh, if you enjoyed the show, be sure to tell me uh, on iTunes, uh, give us a rating and give us a review, uh, or on Facebook, facebook.com slash interesting times with Joe Streckert. Uh, I love hearing from you guys. I'm on Twitter at Joe Streckert, on Tumblr, joestreckert.tumblr.com. And again, this is an independent ad-free podcast, so it is you guys who keep this thing going. Go to interestingtimespodcast.com to make a monthly donation. That would be highly excellent of you. Again, next week, we're done with the darkness for the time being, and we'll have a different episode where no one dies. Talk to you then. Bye.